Would you please turn with me to your study outlines? And as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online. We are so glad uh, that you're joining us for our study of God's Word and also for our friends in Kalispell, Montana, and also Arco, Idaho. We are so glad uh, that you're joining us for our study today as well. Uh, We've been doing a verse-by-verse study of the book of James. And today we come to chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, and we're talking about how to stop wars. Um, Remember the old-fashioned saying, see if you can uh, fill it in for me, Uh, the only things you can count on in life are death and taxes. Exactly. Well, I would add one third one. Death, taxes, and war. Wars have been around from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 4, as soon as you get into the Bible, you find that one of Adam and Eve's sons kills Cain, kills another of their sons, Abel, so a fourth of the world's population kills another fourth of the world's population within the first few uh, pages of the Bible. Uh, The easiest way to chart world or national history is not by our accomplishments, but by our wars. I mean, when I think of how to remember where dates and where things happen in American history, I don't think of the date that Thomas Edison uh, invented the light bulb, or that Henry Ford invented the car, the Wright brothers invented flight, or the computer was invented. I I don't think of those. I tend to think, okay, late 1700s, that was the Revolutionary War. Early 1800s, War of 1812. Middle 1800s, Civil War. Early 1900s, War. World War I, middle 1900s, uh, World War II, and so on with the Korean War and Vietnam War and um, uh, Iraq War and right up to the present time. That ten, tends to how I think of world and, and national history. Uh, historians estimate that since 3600 BC, the world has only had 292 years of peace. That's out of 5,600 years, they've only had 292 years of peace. Uh, during that time, Uh, There have been 14,531 wars with 4 billion people killed. Uh, The value of the destruction of those wars would pay for a golden belt to go around the world that was 97.2 miles in width and 33 feet thick. Since 650 B.C., there have been 1,656 arms races. Only 16 of those did not end in war, and those 16, however, all ended in the economic collapse of the countries involved. Now, we get excited about peace treaties, and we should be, and we should pray for peace treaties. But from 1500 B.C. until 1860 A.D., there have been over 8,000 peace treaties, and the average time that those have lasted is two years. So the average peace treaty uh, through the years only lasts for two years. Now you say, what can I do? I mean, I'm not a diplomat. I'm not a world leader. uh, I'm not a politician. What can I do about that? Well, the Bible says there's a lot you can do. And that's what James is going to challenge us about here this morning. Uh, The wars are between nations and nations are made up of families and families are made up of individuals. And that's where wars start, one-on-one, into the family, into the nations. A boy once asked, Dad, how do wars begin? Well, take the first war, for example, said his father. That got started when Germany invaded Belgium. Immediately, his wife interrupted, tell the boy the truth. It began because somebody was assassinated. The husband drew himself up with an air of superiority and snapped back, are you answering the question or am I? Turning her back upon him in a huff, the wife walked out of the room and slammed the door as hard as she could. When the dishes stopped rattling in the cupboard, an uneasy silence followed, broken at length by the son. Daddy, you don't have to tell me how wars begin. I know how now. I know how they start. 
prepared. Can I just do one additional commercial? If you look on the bottom of the uh, back of uh, or inside of your program, uh, you'll see our marriage assistance mentoring. And let me just encourage you, maybe you have a little bit more discretionary time in, in the summer. This would be a great time to make a good marriage great or even better. Uh, marriage mentoring in all of our marriage program, the classes, biblical marriage that meet through all three hours, the, the mentoring program. They have so many outstanding marriage ministries uh, here at Purpose Church. Uh, just really encourage you that this is not just for marriages that are struggling or going through a hard time. These are to make good marriages even better. And so maybe this would be the summer that you'd invest a little bit more time in your marriage, either by attending one of those biblical marriage classes through the summer or uh, the marriage assistance mentoring. Just have another couple come alongside you to encourage you through a wonderful program uh, that we do in that area. And let's take advantage and let's, let's have healing within our marriages, within our families, within our relationships, because wars are between nations and nations are made up of families and families are made up of individuals, and that's where wars stop. So where do wars come from, and how can we stop them? Well, as we saw in that clip, it all starts with me. And last Sunday, Pastor Eric Holmstrom had a phenomenal message at the 1111 service, and I really encourage you to go online and to catch it, uh, because he went through James 3, verses 13 through 18. So if you want the whole book of James, you're going to want to go back and catch that message. And I heard literally from coast to coast how great this message was. Somebody texted me from Washington, D.C., and they had seen it online and telling me what a great message Eric did. And then right here, many people from our own congregation as well. So I encourage you, and he talked about the difference between uh, worldly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. And worldly wisdom leads to war, and heavenly wisdom leads to peace. Worldly wisdom leads uh, to wars. Uh, Here's an example of worldly wisdom. This is a part of a speech that Ayatollah Khomeini, who was one of the leaders of Iran uh, years ago, uh, that he gave celebrating the birthday of Muhammad. He said in that speech, those who follow the teachings of the Quran know that war is a blessing for the world and for all nations. It is God who incites men to fight and to kill. A religion without war is an incomplete religion. If His Holiness Jesus, blessings on Him, had been given more time to live, He would have acted as Moses did and wielded the sword. Those who believe that Jesus was not interested in war see in Him nothing more than a simple preacher and not a prophet. A prophet is all-powerful. Through war, He purifies the earth. To kill the unbelievers is one of man's greatest missions. Now that's one view of Jesus, and it's a false view, and it is a worldly wisdom view. Now compare that to what we know of Jesus, who hung on the cross, taunted by his enemies, tortured by his enemies, executed by his enemies, and he looks out at those executing him and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's the Jesus that portrayed heavenly wisdom as opposed to worldly wisdom. And worldly wisdom leads to uh, war, and uh, heavenly wisdom leads uh, to peace, as Jesus uh, gave us the example and gives us the power to live. Now, James is going to say that underneath the surface, there are three wars that are going on. Uh, First of all, we are at war with each other. Uh, The verse 1 of chapter 4 says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Now, this you here is written, James is written to Christians. And so the you that he is talking about here is followers of Christ that are having fights and quarrels. Now, sometimes we have this nostalgia about the early church. 
And we say, oh, it would have been so great to live in the time of the early church. They always got along. They sang kumbaya all the time. Everybody got along in the early church. And nothing could be further from the truth. Paul writes to Corinth, uh, confronting them because they were having disputes. They were having lawsuits against each other in the early church. They were suing each other in the church at Corinth. In Galatia, he challenges them to stop biting and devouring each other. In Ephesus, he says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Uh, Paul writes to the church at Philippi and pleads with two women, Eodia and Syntyche, and says, you guys are having this problem with each other. It's causing division within the church. Uh, The Bible talks about class wars here in James. We already studied that in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Socioeconomic wars between the rich and the poor. Uh, We're going to talk in a few weeks about employment wars that are talked about in chapter 5. Uh, Church wars, we already talked about in chapter 1, and also Eric talked about that last Sunday in chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. And then personal wars that we have with each other. Let's look, let's skip ahead to verses 11 and 12, and then we'll come back and do the other verses. Uh, James chapter 4, verse 11 says, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Now, this word slander in the Greek has a broader term than just the legal definition of hurting a person's reputation by spreading falsehoods. This word slander means broadly to criticize each other, to talk bad about each other. It's very broad. Stop uh, criticizing each other. Stop putting each other down, brothers and sisters. Do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law. And the law that James is talking about here is from Leviticus, the the law, love your neighbor as yourself, and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. You're saying, I don't need to follow that law, love your neighbor as yourself. I'm judging the law rather than the law judging me. And then verse 12, uh, he goes on to say, there's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? And so there are personal wars. Now, a major tactic of Satan is to confuse us as to who the real enemy is. Um, He he tries to make us think that it's other than him and that we're the real enemy rather than Satan. On the count of three, I want you to turn to the person next to you on the count of three and say, you are not the enemy, okay? On the count of three, turn to the person next to you and say, one, two, three. You are not the enemy, Now, this is going to be particularly helpful if you're sitting next to your husband or your wife, because uh, Satan tries to confuse us and say, you know, make us think that that we're the enemy. It's one of his major tactics. I love this example from history. I get such a kick out of this story. When World War I broke out, the war ministry in London dispatched a coded message to one of the British outposts in an inaccessible area of Africa. The message read, war declared arrest all enemy aliens in your district. The war ministry received his prompt reply, have arrested 10 Germans, six Belgians, four Frenchmen, two Italians, three Austrians, and an American. Please advise immediately who we're at war with. He just, <laughs> he just arrested everybody in sight. And he said, uh, let, let, me, let me know who we're at war with. Well, who, who are we at war with? Well, it's not fellow Christians. Now, there's a time to defend the faith, to defend God's word. Uh, there's certainly a time uh, for that. We have a, a, a quote that we use a lot here uh, at Purpose Church, an essentials unity 
in non-essentials liberty, and in all things charity. That is, in the essentials of the faith, the things clearly taught within God's Word, those we have to have unity on, and we need to defend the unity, and we need to promote the unity. And so there's a time uh, for that. But in non-essentials liberty, the things that uh, Christians can disagree on agreeably, uh, the sincere Christians can see differently on the non-essentials, the things that aren't as clear within the Bible, on those things we need to have liberty. And in all things charity, we need to love each other despite our, our differences. I, I love this from comedian Emo Phillips. I think we've got his picture there. Uh, he tells this story. In conversation with a person I had recently met, I asked, are you Protestant or Catholic? My new acquaintance replied, Protestant. I said, me too. What franchise? He answered, Baptist. Me too, I said, Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? Northern Baptist, he replied. Me too, I shouted. We continued to go back and forth. Finally, I asked him, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? He replied, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. I said, die, you heretic. And sometimes we, we criticize each other and criticize other churches and criticize prominent Christian leaders and pastors because they have a different style of evangelism and outreach than we do. Um, I remember Dia, the story of D.L. Moody, a great preacher, kind of the Billy Graham of the 1800s, one of the greatest evangelists of all time. And this man was ripping into him because he didn't like his style of evangelism, of reaching people for Christ. So D.L. Moody listened humbly and graciously, and they said, okay, well, thank you for your input. What's your method of reaching people for Jesus? And the man said, well, I have none. And D.L. Moody says, well, I like my way of reaching people for Jesus better than your way of not reaching people uh, for, for Jesus. Um, I have a theory on this as to why we fight with fellow Christians on these things. It's to avoid the way harder thing, which is reaching people for Christ. That's the heavy lifting in the Christian life, isn't it? building bridges with our oikos, going to heaven, taking our oikos with us. It is so much easier to fight with each other about secondary issues than it is to, to do the thing Christ last told us to do just before he went to heaven. His last words was, were to reach the lost. And, and it's way harder work than just having disagreements with, with, with fellow Christians. Uh, you know how it is if you've got a project that you're really dreading you do everything else to put off that project. You've got a paper at work, uh, at school. You've got a big paper at school you've got to get done. Big project at work. You've got to get your taxes done or something like that. And man, all of a sudden, I'm cleaning my desk. I'm cleaning a closet. All of a sudden, I'm organizing my socks in the drawer. I'm, I'm doing everything rather than avoid that hard thing. And we do the same thing. We, we bicker with each other about secondary items because that's way easier than doing the hard thing, which is to reach uh, people for Christ. So it is not uh, fellow Christians. Uh, Stephen Brown explains that when a group of thoroughbred horses face attack, they stand in a circle facing each other with their back legs kicking out at the enemy. Donkeys do just the opposite. They face the enemy and kick each other. <laughs> How often does the church do just that, ignoring the real enemy while we attack uh, fellow uh, believers. So of who are we at war with? Not with fellow Christians and not with non-Christians. 
Non-followers of Christ are not the enemy, they're victims of the enemy. We see two Mormon missionaries riding down the street on their bicycles. That's not the enemy, they're victims of the enemy. We see people dressed in Muslim attire. They're not the enemy, they're victims of the enemy. When somebody like Richard Dawkins writes a book like The God Delusion as an atheist manifesto against the Christian faith, he's not the enemy, he's a victim of, of the enemy. And so if it's not fellow Christians and if it's not non-Christians, what are we to do when we encounter conflict with fellow Christians or with those that are not following Christ? We're to do radical love, forgiveness, and acceptance. We are followers of the one who hung on a cross, looked at those torturing him, and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We are to do radical grace, radical love in the face of conflict, opposition, and of criticism. You're going to encounter somebody who mistreats you, and God's going to remind you to give them cotton candy, just like Kevin Costner. Maybe if I do that, I'll look like Kevin Costner, (laughs) and Kimberly will be so very glad. Uh, uh, Bring it to mind, James 4, verses 1 through 12. The Holy Spirit's going to have you, maybe it'll just be at one of your family get-togethers in 48 hours. Maybe it's going to be somebody at work. Maybe it's going to be somebody at school, and they're going to mistreat you. And all of a sudden, Holy Spirit's going to bring to mind either the Scripture or the image. Give them some cotton candy. And you're going to do something radical, Jesus-style radical, in the face of what they've done to you. And that's when people are drawn like a magnet to Jesus. Well, if fellow Christians are not the enemy, and if non-Christians are not the enemy, then who is? Well, certainly Satan, as we've already talked about. But James talks about others. Uh, We're at war with ourselves. Uh, Back to verse 1 again that we've already done. Verses 1 through 3. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Verse 2. You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. Verse 3. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. And so he says, we're at war with ourselves. We have met the enemy and he is us. Or have you ever heard somebody say, that person is their own worst enemy? Well, we're all our own uh, worst enemy. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. The basic inner struggle as human beings is, will I do my way or will I do God's way? And if I do my way, it means that we're at war with God. Uh, how? Uh, first of all, by being friendly with God's uh, enemies. In verse 4, James chapter 4, verse 4, he talks about the world. And not meaning the planet Earth, but he means society apart from God. He says, you adulterous people. Adultery is an Old Testament image where the people of God are like the bride of God. Uh, the nation of Israel, was, uh, their husband was God. And so when they ran after other gods, they were called an adulterous people. And the same is true for us. We're called the bride of Christ. And so when we love the world, this culture, this society, more than we love Christ, we are committing adultery as the bride of Christ. And so he says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And then our inner nature, as we've already talked about some, Uh, First of all, verse 1, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? And so we struggle in our adulterous 
love of the world and of our own way rather than God's way. And then verse 5, he says, or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously, so it's going back to that whole theme of being faithful to Christ, being faithful to God, he jealously, uh, as our husband, uh, he jealously longs for the Spirit he has caused to dwell in us. He wants us to have heavenly wisdom by the Holy Spirit, not worldly wisdom that leads to lack of peace and, and to war. And then the devil, as we've talked about already in verses 6 and 7. Uh, verse 6, but he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Verse 7, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Uh, Cecil B. DeMille is one of the great uh, Hollywood directors of the past. He directed big films uh, like majestic films like Ben-Hur. His most famous was probably the Ten Commandments. And here's what he said about the Ten Commandments. He said, it is impossible for us to break the law. We can only break ourselves against the law. We can't break God's law. It's eternal. We can't break God's will and purpose for our lives. It's eternal. But we can destroy ourselves. We can break ourselves on it by resisting it. And so he says God opposes the proud that are choosing to do their own thing. But he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from us. We can only break ourselves against the law. Uh, we can't break the law. The captain of the ship looked into the dark night and saw faint lights in the distance. Immediately he told his signalman to send a message. Alter your course 10 degrees south. Promptly a return message was received. You alter your course 10 degrees north. The captain was angry. His command had been ignored, so he sent a second message. Alter your course 10 degrees south. I am an admiral. Soon another message was received. You alter your course 10 degrees north. I am seaman third class Jones. Immediately, the captain of the ship sent a third message, knowing the fear it would evoke. You alter your course 10 degrees south. I am a battleship. Then the reply came. You alter your course 10 degrees north. I am a lighthouse. <laughs> now, we think we're battleships, and we're all that, and yet we will break ourselves on a lighthouse, won't we? And so we can't break his law. We can only break ourselves on his law. Um, as the worship team comes back up, let's look at verses 7 through 10. And the three steps to peace that James talks about here. Uh, step number one is to submit to God, based on verse 7 that we saw before. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And then the second is to come near to God. Verse 8, James says, submit yourself to God. Now come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, hear this word, uh, double-minded, in, in the Bible. It means where we're kind of on the fence between doing things my way or God's way. Uh, there's an old West African proverb that goes like this. The man who tries to walk two roads will split his pants. And we try to walk two roads. And that's what the Bible refers to as double-minded. 
We're on the fence. Are we going to do it God's way or our way? He says, submit to God. Come near to God. And then number three, humble yourselves uh, before the Lord. Verses 9 and 10. Grieve, mourn, and wail. These are words of repentance. It says, repent of worldly wisdom that leads to lack of peace in our relationships and within our lives. Repent of that. Grieve for it. Mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Humble yourselves. Submit to his will and he will lift you up. What James is talking about here is this week, let's look for opportunities to give cotton candy to those that are oppressing us. To have not a natural response, but a supernatural response. The big thing now is superheroes. Um, and, and so we want to have a response that says, you know what? I don't want to be ordinary. I want to be supernatural. I want to have the response that doesn't curse my enemies. Like Ayatollah Khomeini says, the highest form is to kill those that oppose you. That's how God purifies the earth. No, Jesus hung on a cross and he looked at those that were oppressing him, that were torturing him, that were taunting him and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He gave them cotton candy when they deserve the wrath of God. And that's what he calls us to do. Uh, Follow the example of Jesus and the good news is we carry with us the power of Jesus to follow his example. And then we'll have peace with God. Then we'll have peace with ourselves. Then we'll have peace with each other. And the wars will stop. And all God's family said, amen. Hey, let's stand up. And let's honor our good, good father who gives us the ability uh, to live this kind of life.